Well, good morning, everybody. We are continuing in a fantastic series through one of, one of I think, one of the most exciting and life-changing sections of the New Testament that I, I've ever had a chance to study and read. It's Romans chapter 6 to 8. It's in the heart of Paul's letter to the church of Rome, describing the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ that we receive by faith and live by faith every day. And we live out this faith believing what Christ has done for us is only possible, only possible. The life that he's done for us is only possible in him so that we might have new life. This is our post-Easter season, uh, post-Easter uh, messages that talk about what it really looks like to live a resurrected life. We talk about resurrection at Easter, but what does it really mean to live a resurrected life? Well, let's look at that this morning as we talk again in Romans chapter 6, 15 to 23, the rest of Romans chapter 6 this morning, and we talk about this breaking free finally breaking free finally. Um, I was uh, reviewing a book early this morning that my daughter recommended that I read. It's called The Power of Habit. Anybody read Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit? Anybody read that? Yeah, we got, how'd it work? Did it go pretty good? You liked it? Okay. Um, and he opens the whole book with this, this woman who's a smoker, excessive eating, went through a divorce, ends up in Egypt, and gets up early in the morning, takes a cab ride over to the pyramids, and has this epiphany. She looks over the desert and thinks, I'm going to change my life. I'm coming back here to trek through the desert. But I know I'll have to make some changes. So she sets out to do this. And uh, in order to write this book, these scientists studied kind of her brain. Neurologically, what they discover is that something dramatic changes that sets off a chain reaction that results in ditching old habits for new ones. Cigarettes, lavish food for jogging, changes her diet, which impact other areas of her life, slept better, started making better financial decisions. And those scientists that had been studying her discovered that it wasn't her decision to trek or the shock of her divorce. It was her focusing on changing just one habit, just one area of her life, smoking. That was it. A keystone habit that uh, she reprogrammed and other routines kind of fell into place. Her brain scans revealed new patterns of thinking and thus new behavior. In uh, a Duke University study uh, shows us that 40% um, of our actions that people perform every day were not actual decisions, but habits. 40% of what you do is based on habit. Isn't that interesting? Uh, in the book, there's a couple interesting stories. One of them is uh, the story of Tony, um, Tony Dungy. He waited 17 years as an assistant coach working at various programs before he actually got a, a chance to become a professional football coach. It was his coaching strategy that kept him from being selected. Many times he went through interviews. 
And his coaching strategy was this. I want to stop players from making so many decisions during the game. He wanted them to react automatically on the basis of habit. It's a three-step loop of cue, routine, and reward. The cue's the same, the reward's the same, but the routine changes. And when your routine changes, everything sets off in motion and goes in a different direction. So it's an interesting read. Also about Rick Warren in Saddleback Church and, and how he um, was able to build this mega church in Orange County on the basis of this idea. Becoming a follower of Christ isn't easy, right? I mean, we, we set off on this new life in Christ and everything's supposed to change. And then we wake up one day and realize, well, I just keep acting like I always acted. What's going on? Why, why is it that I'm still doing the very same thing that I've been doing for a, a long time? And I've come to Christ, I've made a decision, I'm accepting the resurrection life, I've heard the message, I've decided to change, but then not, change really doesn't come. Maybe in some areas, but I'm really not that satisfied with it. Twice Paul addresses this in Romans 6. In chapter 6, he begins in verse 1, and this is last week. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May I continue? Should I continue in the lifestyle and the pattern of living that I used to live before I was a Christian? Should I continue on? Because God is obviously a God of grace. God accepts me. God loves me. God knows we're human. God knows we're going to make decisions that we're not perfect. So why not just lean into that and get more of God's grace for living an old way of life? Paul says, may it never be. In the first 14 verses, he says, the reason you don't do that is because it's inconsistent with who you now become. Why live inconsistent of your true internal identity that's changed? So that's number one. So we looked at that. I, I talked to, um, I had a great opportunity with the Rush High School uh, group. Uh, Luke asked me to speak last week. And he said, tell me, tell your life story about high school and your experiences in high school. And I said, okay, here's, here's, here's my bottom line. What I realized going into high school after having made several major mistakes in junior high, kind of like, oh, really? I think that's probably pretty common, right? If I could just erase those three years, I'd be better off. But uh, there they are. So I got into high school, and I determined to live a different kind of life. I was just like, I determined. And that's what I wanted to help the high schoolers understand, is that I decided at that point in my life that I wanted to live a different life, a different course in my life. My dad knew what was going on. He called me into his den. I've told this story. And he basically said, son, there are two roads in life, and you're headed down the wrong road. And that so impacted me that I decided I'm going to head down the right road in life. And so I set out to do that. And I made some decisions, three decisions. But here's the point. In high school, we don't often think about the future. We're not looking that far in the future thinking, how is the, the decisions I'm making now really going to impact 
later down in life? Well, ask, ask Judge Kavanaugh that question. Having had his life literally dissected, his high school experiences dissected before the world, realizing, well, I'm not running, the, I'm not running for Supreme Court, so it really doesn't matter. He had his life literally dissected. And the kind of choices and the kind of decisions that he made early in life set him on a course. Did he think, gosh, one day this is going to all be exposed? I don't think he thought that. I just think that he decided to live a certain kind of life. And he set on in a different, in a different direction. So what do we do? Paul asked the question, what should we do? Well... We don't want to continue living the old way because it's inconsistent with who we are. That was the first section. But now he changes gear and he says, he asks the same question. If you look in verse 15, he says, what should we say? Are we con to continue in sin? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be, Paul says. So Paul asks the question again in verse 15, and now he doesn't focus on identity, he focuses on behavior. And he's going to explain why that behavior, that style of life, is not profitable to you. The first one was, it's inconsistent with who you are. You've been baptized into the death and raised in Christ in newness of life, because of the baptism that you experienced in Christ, you're a different person. Your nature has been changed. We covered that. But now he's going to look at the, the, the pluses and minuses, the advantages and the disadvantages of living a new life in Christ or slipping back to an old way of life, being controlled by our impulses. In the first case, it was, I'm not sure I really can make the change. And we determined last week, you can make the change because the old way of life, sin in general, no longer has power over you. It's still present in your life. It still tempts, but it doesn't have the power. It does not have the power over the life of a believer that has been baptized into Christ. It does not have that power and authority in your life. And you need to look at it and say, it doesn't. Is it still tempting? Absolutely. Do we still make mistakes? No question. Do we still fall back? No question. That's why Paul continues the argument in verse 15 and says, now I've covered the first part, why you can. Now I want to explain why you would want to. Does that make sense? So this section is all about why you would want to live the new life. And Paul gives us four reasons, and I'll give them to you. Hopefully you have your little booklet with your verse, and we're going to look at that verse here in a second. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to tell you what the four things are. So what should we do? Should we continue in sin that um, grace might increase? May it never be. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Don't you know that the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of that same one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Verse 18, and after being freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. 
I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented the parts of your body as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your bodies, the body parts, as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now shamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin, enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. And the outcome? Eternal life. Notice the contrast. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Paul is making this massive contrast between life and death. Unrighteousness, righteousness. The benefits, the fruit of a life lived one way and the life lived another way. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So here is where we're going. I want to talk about four reasons to consider a new lifestyle. Number one, you serve your choices. That's number one. We're going to look at that briefly. I'm going to just give them to you. You serve your choices. You do. Number two, lawless living leads to lawlessness. Lawless living leads to lawlessness. Number three, your life produces either bad fruit or good fruit. There's no neutrality. Good fruit or bad fruit. And number four, it leads either to death or to sanctification. Death or sanctification. Did you get those? Are, you, are we good? So those, that's where we're going this morning. Four things. Okay, so let's take a look at it and uh, see what we can come up with here. Paul begins in chapter 6 with this idea. May never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? It's one or the other. So Paul says in this very beginning, in this very first verse, that it's, it's, a, it's, it's something that you do that puts you in a position of being controlled by it. And it will control the direction of your life. Needham wrote a book called Birthright. I read it many, many years ago when I was in college. And he says, we have a dilemma. And for a lot of Christians, he says, we have a fake Christian identity. We are like anyone else. We're just human. We're fundamentally sinful. And he says, that's the identity that we've kind of held on to. We're just fundamentally sinful. We're just like anybody else. But to be a Christian... One must somehow say no to their fundamental nature in order to say yes to God 
who is telling us to do something that's contrary to our nature. And when we have that mindset, it puts us in a mindset of slavery to the very thing that we want to get out of, uh, out of bondage to. Now, in the first century, slavery was this indentured slavery. It was more of a, a vol- it was voluntary that, we would, that one would put themselves in the control or authority of someone else in order to earn off a debt, learn a particular trade, get their feet on the ground for a period of time. And so it was a voluntary thing that you put yourself under the authority of someone else for a period of time. That's the idea. And that's what Paul's thinking of here. And in doing so, you'd set the course of your life and you become indentured. You become committed to that way of life until you're released or free from your debt or your commitment. So Paul is reminding us of the severity of choosing a particular course. And he describes them as either, and notice notice this passage, notice what he's doing. He's giving us the contrast, and he's going to do it all the way through this passage. Slaves to obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin resulting in death or obedience that results in righteousness. There's There's a difference. And the decisions that you make, the choices you make, the habits that you form in your life that set the pattern of your life will result in one or the other. That's, that's number one. Um, have, you ever read, have you ever read the book uh, Devil in the White City in, 19, in 1893, Chicago's World Fair? Dr. H.H. H. Holmes, I, think he was, I believe he was a dentist, moved to Chicago during the building of the World's Fair. And the story tells the construction of the World's Fair as, um, and then also every other chapter tells the story of Dr. Holmes who moves in, buys an apartment uh, building, and sets up shop. And the problem is, is Dr. Holmes is not a a very good dentist. (laughs) If you've read the book, he's a very bad dentist. He's a bad person. He's a murderer. And he brings... Uh, individuals into his apartment building where he murders them and lives out this pattern of life. It's pretty horrible. I mean, right to the bottom, there it is. There's the story. And he's got this incinerator in the basement. It's, a, it's, it's just like grueling to read this. What's fascinating, I got through the end of the book. You get to the last section of the book, and he's finally caught. And he's in prison and he's telling kind of the, his own personal side of the story, I'm finally glad I got caught. I hated living this life. Obviously, it destroyed him as a person. Ultimately led to his imprisonment. And he tells the story that he says that he fi- he's so happy that it's finally over, that he has been set free from it. It's interesting how uh, long it takes in terms of a practice to get to that point. 
But what Paul says is we've been set free. We've, been, we've, we've given ourselves over to Christ, and there's another option. And it's quite interesting to me how we struggle with this decision when you look at the consequences. I mean, when you realize the fact that we're putting ourselves under the grace of God in Christ, all based on Christ's efforts, a God who is influencing us for the better, and yet we still struggle with making this decision. It's like a person I'd rather live on the streets and fend for myself, or I can choose a plot of land on my father's benevolent acreage. Huge, thousands thousands of acres, a gigantic, beautiful ranch, and an opportunity to build homes, homestead, and yet we choose to live on the streets and fend for ourselves. And Paul's drawing that contrast. And ultimately, it will enslave us. But the second thing we see here in verse 19, if we continue reading, it produces further lawlessness. Lawless behavior produces lawlessness. And he even says it. He says it clearly. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulted in further lawlessness. It's the law of diminishing returns. And if you take the classic example of a farmer and he has laborers, and he continues to add and hire more laborers, thinking that he's going to increase his production. At some point, their output per worker will fall as opposed to increase if he continues to add more workers. It's the law of diminishing returns. Something else has to change. You reach a point where diminishing returns happens by continuing to do the same thing and it just continues on. And it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. It's the story of Star Wars. Um, Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker, they battle it out. It's this great epic. But it all comes together. Star Wars all comes together when you understand where the dark force leads to. When Anakin Skywalker turns to the dark side, and there's a lot of pressure on him. He felt smothered by his mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi. He, he felt lured in by Palpatine, the Chancellor. He had a dream. The woman that he was marrying, the woman that he loved, he had a dream that she would die in childbirth. And so all these pressures are upon him. And he knew that he couldn't overcome her death, but he wanted to. And he became angry and rage and disappointment and desire to control his situation. The deeper he went into that life, it ultimately cost him everything. We know the story. Are you willing to go that far? I won't let it get it out of hand. It's really amazing to me how simple the invitation is to invite Christ into your life and how few choose it. 7.7 billion people and 2.38 billion people follow after Christ. It's the easiest decision in the world, in my opinion. God does not want to ruin your life. 
Jesus offers you what you can't accomplish in a lifetime of effort. A lifetime of effort. And wants to manage and wants to change the downward cycle of being controlled by your impulses that ultimately lead to death. I mean, that's what Paul's saying here in this passage. Well, I'm not going to let it get that far. Okay. The third thing Paul says in verse 21 is it produces no life-lasting benefits. And he uses the word fruit, carpon. Your life either produces good fruit or bad fruit. I'm never a better person when I sin. When I choose the impulses of my heart, I'm never a better person. Anger, lust, compromise, self-centeredness. Tell me the last time you cut a corner and benefited. Well, you might have gotten away with it. But, but really? Did you benefit? When I was a little kid, we used to go to the Colorado River with my family. And we'd, uh, we'd camp on the shore and, and uh, ski and just hang out in the sun. And there was a little general store. And I remember as a little guy going up to that general store, and I saw a metal, silver metal whistle that I wanted. All I had to do was ask, would be to ask my parents, and they probably would have bought it for me, but I decided to steal it. So I stole this little metal whistle, and I put it in my pocket. And the thing about it is that I remember the only way for me to enjoy it was to go into the station wagon, pull it out of my pocket, and look at it secretly because I didn't want my parents to know that I stole it. It didn't bring me the joy that I thought it was going to bring. And actually, my childhood memory of it is that actually it was, it was in my pocket. It actually kind of dug into my skin and kind of hurt. It was like this whistle is in my pocket. It doesn't belong in your pocket. It belongs around your neck or, you know. So... It didn't even bring the joy. That's, that's a childhood memory that I have. Because Paul talks about this, this shame that comes when we give in and we stay the course. One last thing. Verse 21 and 23. Paul says, Again, do you not know that the outcome of these things is death? But having been freed from sin, enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So again, Paul is giving us another reason to consider. The ultimate wage that sin brings in our lives is death. It's a military term. It means the wages that were paid for a soldier's efforts. And in your life, the efforts that you produce are either the, the, the result of it, the fruit of your, 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 your labor. The wages that you receive will either be what Paul's saying, there's no neutral ground, death or eternal life. sanctification or unrighteousness. So Paul's laying it out there, so what do we do? He's given us some reasons, some things to consider. So what's our kind of game plan, if that's the way we want to begin kind of focusing our life? Well, three things. Present, 
I see the word present in verse 16. Present. Hand over your life to the authority of the one that you think desires your most good. The beneficial, the one that is most beneficial. The benevolent God, the caring master who wants only your good. You know, in in uh, Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. And we, I've been thinking a lot about that. And I read one particular review of that that basically says, Now you think about it, there is no such thing as an easy yoke. Because a yoke is a hard kind of a, it's a stock that the, that the, um, the oxen would be put in and forced to go a certain direction. And and it's like, geez, this doesn't sound very appealing to be put into this stock and being forced to go a certain direction with Christ. But it's an easy yoke. And this person indicates the easy yoke is possibly a non-yoke. That getting in relationship with Christ is removing the hardship of the yoke because of the path that Christ wants you to follow ultimately turns out to be your, for your benefit. And so I, I willingly present because I know this is going to have a good result in my life. Scriptures are filled with scriptures, talk, verses talking about the con- contrast between two masters. The second thing I notice is in uh, verse 17. But thanks be to God, through your, you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. The idea of a heart. It's a heart issue. It's really a matter of evaluating your heart. Get your heart in the right place. So not only do I, am I willingly presenting my life to him, knowing the benefits, but I'm also rearranging my heart. It's slowing down. It's reflecting. It's asking the question, what really is controlling? What is going on in my heart? Because that's at the root of it. You can't change your life until your heart changes. So it's a matter of getting deeper into your life and asking the question, what's really controlling your heart right now? That's where, you know, 1 John, that's why John calls us to come regularly before the Lord. It's a consistent life pattern of confessing. And confession is just simply saying the same thing God believes. I know, I know where I am. I know my heart. I know Psalm 139. Test me, O God. Point these things out at me. Let me know what's going on deep within my heart. What is it? Reveal to me the truth of my heart. And then let's, let's do some real heart work in bringing about a new lasting change as I reflect on a different way of life that's offered to us in the scriptures. And then one last thing. Paul mentions in Romans 6 this idea of sanctification. Holiness. Sanctification is just simply the process of being set apart for God. Being, becoming holy begins by, first of all, deciding I'm going to set apart my life. Every area of my life is set apart. It's set apart. I was telling the high school students at Rush, um, one of the things that we have taught our kids early in life is how to stand alone because stand-up people learn how to stand alone. Great 
leaders, great people, people that have accomplished a lot in life, look back on their lives and say, I learned how to stand alone. I didn't go the way of the crowd. I didn't just make the decisions I wanted to make that felt good. I decided to stand alone because I knew in standing alone and paying the price for that, there was great reward. There was great reward every single time. That's the process of sanctification. Standing alone, setting it apart, deciding what you want in your life and giving that over to the Lord in every area of your life. Begin with one area. Begin with one area. What's the one area now in your life that you want to hand over to the Lord and watch the process happen? It'll take a lifetime, but it's worth it. Let's pray. So, Father, we think of our marriages. We think of our words. We think of our minds. We think of our actions. We think of all the things in our lives that, um, Lord, have the ability to turn us into these remarkable creatures that you want to create us into, to become these dazzling creatures. And yet, so much of our lives are consumed with a way of thinking, a way of acting, a way of life that is not consistent with that. And so, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that we would come before you as followers and we would bring a heart and a desire to slow down and reflect and bring to mind and begin a process of handing over to you those areas of our lives and see the change. You are the one in our lives that wants our best. You are the one. You're looking out for our best. You want at the end of our lives for us to be able to look back and say, I lived the life that God wanted me to live. And it was a joy-filled, fruitful life. So Father, may we begin the process this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's worship. And then when we have worshiped, we are going to share some time in communion as we close. And so you're welcome just to go to the communion table and remember the sacrifice of Christ, his body and his blood sacrificed for you. You take that in remembrance of him in the name of Jesus. you stand as we worship together. Grace, what have you done? And Grace, what have you done? Murder for me on that cross Accused in absence of wrong my sin washed away in your blood Too much to make sense of it all 
I know that your love breaks my fall The scandal of grace You died in my place Then my soul will live Oh, to be like you To give all I have just to know you Jesus, there's no one beside you Forever the hope in my heart And death, where is your sting? Some power is as dead as my sin. The cross has taught me to live. And mercy, my heart now to sing. The day and its troubles shall come. I know that your strength is enough The scandal of grace You died in my place That my soul will live Oh, to be like you To give all I have just to know you Jesus, there's no one beside you Forever the hope in my heart And it's all, and it's all Because of you, Jesus, it's all Because of you, Jesus, it's all Because of your love that my soul So, because of you, Jesus, it's so. Because of you, Jesus, it's so. Because of your love that my soul will Oh, to be like you, to give all I have just to know you. Jesus, there's no one beside you Forever the hope in my heart And Lord, I need you Oh, I need you Every hour I need you You're my as Todd said, we're coming to this table of communion in, re re <laughs> in remembrance. Remembering God's sacrifice and giving up our love, giving up our lives in love. To say, God, I decide. I decide to choose you. I choose you, God. So I'm going to sing a couple more choruses and take the communion in your time but take in remembrance and take in love saying God I decide to choose you I decide to love you go in peace